The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Okay, so my guest today on the Cappuccino is Dr. Joe Prendergast. Who's Dr. Joe Prendergast? Well, she's a parent. That's probably one of her most important roles in life. Uh, she's an MC. She's a speaker. She also happens to be a psychiatrist. Uh, she's also a stand-up comedian um, with the alter ego of Joe Ghastly, and we're definitely going to talk about that. She is a breast cancer survivor, and that's really important to mention as well. Uh, the real reason we're here, though, is because she is the author of When Life Sucks, Parenting Your Teen Through Tough Times. Um, and amongst other things, she also has two one-woman shows. She's just finished doing a big tour of The Cool Mum, and your Cancer and Cartwheels is about to kick off in December time, isn't it, Joe? Yes, that's right, doing uh, 8th and 9th of December in Otatahi Christchurch and then a South Island mini tour in January. So excited to be putting that show together and rehearsing it over the next month or so. And I see that there was even a, well, to be confirmed, but um, the possibility of you appearing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and the Edinburgh Comedy Festival as well. Do you find that yes. nerve-wracking? Because some of the um, talent that's going to be there should be fairly stellar. Yeah, well, I mean, I did um, Adelaide Fringe earlier this year, which is, I think there were like 1,200 shows going simultaneously, and I managed to sell out the show and got five star re uh, reviews. So I think the the external validation of people showing up to my show and reviewers saying they enjoyed it kind of boosts confidence. And I think also once you've been through cancer treatment and being doing your solo show followed by an in conversation book event, so you've got like two hours of being constantly kind of on uh, on form hopefully that just doing my solo show at a festival seems like um quite a manageable task <laughs> especially given i think i've done it about 35 times now so i can literally almost do it in my sleep oh, now yeah, so that's all good yeah. all right so i always start the podcast off with um what i call the speed round dedicated to what i believe is one of the world's greatest police movies speed starring starring keanu reeves He's right. Neo from the Matrix. He's part of the yes. yeah, same, same, same. So I'm gonna ask you seven quick fire random questions. First thought that comes into your head, tell us. Uh, okay, cool. All right, who is the greatest comedian of all time? Oh, Nick Rado, obviously. Oh, there you go. Please, yeah. He's gonna <laughs> um, love you for no, that. No, but seriously, I think Nick is amazing because he can just do hour after hour of clean comedy without having to resort to kind of dick jokes and yeah. drug references and things and swearing so he's he's right up there for me there you go uh, your favorite movie of all time is what Ooh, that's a good question probably the first grease because that was one of the first movies i saw as a child in the movie theater and i know all the lyrics and all the dance moves so it's uh, been very formative to my youth there you go, Sandy Jr., come on in. The last book that you read was what? 
my own book, When Life Sucks, about 10 times during the editing process. So, um, so I haven't done much. Uh, apart from that, it's probably the Missing Sisters series um, by uh, Lucinda, who has unfortunately passed away. But, um, yeah, I've loved her books because they go back to sort of historical references and romance, which are both things that I enjoy. Perfect. Um, now, normally we do this in a patrol car, um, and I know you know that. So normally, yes. I, normally I order you a coffee and bring it in the patrol car. So if I was going to order Dr. Joe Prendergast a coffee, what would I be ordering? Um, a trim milk latte. I'm used to saying a skinny latte because I've just been in Australia for a yeah. couple of weeks. But yes, that's my uh, brew of choice. Wait till you get to North America where a mochaccino becomes a mochaccino. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I really enjoy is what? Uh, swimming in the sea. That's go. probably my ultimate favourite thing. If you want to get on Dr. Joe Prendergast's wick, then do what? Uh, be unreliable. Um, yes, I find people who don't do what they say they're going to do probably the most irritating thing. There you go. And you may have alluded to this earlier on, maybe. Uh, your favourite all-time song is is what? Probably hopelessly devoted to you from Greece. There you go. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a parody of that for my next um, my next show. So that's really on my mind at the moment. There we go. All right. So how did I got to ask you this question to start off with? How did your kids feel when you told them that you were writing this book? Granted, they're not teenagers anymore, but clearly there would have been some panic about mum revising some old stories. Uh, in the spot. Yeah, I mean, I did check with them, like I did a draft, and then I checked with them any places where I referred to them, and then I checked with them again in the editing process to make sure that any references were okay. So I, I did say to them that I wasn't, you know, that most of it was going to be about I'm a real parent, I'm only a kind of C-plus to be kind of parent, I'm not perfect. Um, so most of it is referring to my parenting um, and there were a couple of times, particularly with my son, that he was very happy to talk about having ADHD and dyslexia and the ways that he managed that. And um, so, yeah, so definitely checked with them. And I don't think they were particularly concerned because I'd already done a comedy show that was very explicitly about them, including video clips of them being in the show and their image. So I think they thought uh, the book was probably a very toned down version of the uh, references to them in the comedy show. So Mum's dropped the comedian's hat and put on the psychiatrist one, so we're all good, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, um, that's one of the strong things that comes through with When Life Sucks is that if you are a parent, it's okay to be an okay parent, isn't it? That's really, really yeah. strong. You don't have to be um, something exceptional that you might see in a Hollywood movie or the such like. And that was one of the real big things that stuck with me as a parent is it's okay to be just an okay parent, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the reality is that most parents who are reading a parenting book are the type of parents who are likely to get anxious if they're reading a parenting book that tells them that they have to be a lot better and they have to do things right or else their children will suffer. Um, and then those parents are likely to get more anxious and more intrusive and be more helicoptery and that that's going to then have a negative effect. So one of the really important things is supporting parents, parents looking after themselves, putting their own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. Um, because I've certainly read books that have completely undermined my confidence in my parenting and feeling like I'm not a great parent and I'm not doing all the right things and I don't always stay calm in situations where I ideally would. 
So I think that kind of rupture and repair idea that things will go wrong, about 70% of parenting is about ruptures, particularly with teenagers, and that our role as parents is to find ways to repair those ruptures rather than to freak out because something's gone wrong. Now, as one professional to another, I, as a police officer, I have hear lots of complaints. Parents are always in my ear about their kids doing stuff and everything else. I hear complaints about device time, um, the generation that we've got now being soft, mm. um, all this pronoun stuff, powder puff kids, you know, with no resilience. Are today's kids really that much different to, say, a kid of the 90s or the early 2000s? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a few reasons. One is that Gen Z is a very educated generation, particularly around social justice and environmental issues. Um, so they're more likely to be offended and upset if Gen X, boomer parents and grandparents have um, views that are in conflict with human rights or self-focused rather than relating to kind of the greater good and things. You know, these, these are obviously sweeping generalisations, yeah, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, there was an interesting talk at the um, psychiatrist um, conference that I went to in August, um, just talking about the attributes of Gen Z. And I think also that confidence and self-expression that I'm sure I didn't have as a teenager. I mean, if you had a different opinion from your parents, you generally didn't say it, except in the heat of the moment. <laughs> um, whereas my kids very clearly assert their opinions and are very confident in expressing them because they've always been heard um, by teachers, parents, friends, um, that self-expression is valued. Um, and I think also quite an emphasis on the importance of like a work-life balance that I don't think we grew up with. It was all about having, you know, a good work ethic, whereas Gen Z is much about um, this is a job that isn't bringing me joy. This isn't the right fit for my mental health. Um, working 80 hours a week isn't fitting with well-being and the work-life balance. You know, so I think they, they've they had education on what the ideal balance looks like and they're confident to say this particular setup is not um, meeting those needs. So, so I think that's why it looks kind of soft to some Gen X and Boomer um, adults that, <clears throat> but in some ways they're, living what we are recommending that people live in terms of setting those boundaries, expressing their needs. Um, and it's just that it's a different generation um, with a different education. And also it's the generation with the highest mental health difficulties um, related to a whole lot of factors, you know, social media, climate change, um, uncertainty about their future, uh, pandemics have absolutely skyrocketed um, youth mental health difficulties. So they've also got this increased burden of mental health difficulties as a generation as well. And let's be honest, um, like a mental health specialist said on an earlier podcast I did, our generation, you and I's generation, we actually created this. So we're actually reaping what we sow, aren't we, to be fair? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, things evolve over time. There are certainly things like 
um, climate change that our generation and our parents' generation has had a, a, a role in creating some of these difficulties and our generation invented a lot of the things like social media that are now um, creating some difficulties for young people. So yeah, exactly. You know, we've we've bred these um, Gen Zers and we've created the world that they've grown up in. So we do need to take some responsibility for that. Not wrong. Now, we live in an era where a number of parents will often refer to their kids as friends. And I see that in the book, even your good friend, psychologist Catherine Gallagher says, it's about being a friendly parent, not a parent who is a friend. Why do you think so many parents have fallen down that particular, I'm going to call it the rabbit hole of friendship? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a strong uh, desire for parents to be liked by their teenagers and to have an amicable relationship. And I think because Gen Zers do express things more, there's a sense like, oh, I'm getting close. Let's go kind of have lunch together and kind of chat like BFFs. But the downside of that is that it often tends to be all of the kind of warm side of a warm rock without the rock part of the warm rock. Um, yeah. So it's all kind of love without limits quite often when you're BFFs, whereas a parent is both loving and sets limits and expectations, sort of like a, a trampoline safety net around the young person so they can kind of bounce off those boundaries and feel more safe and secure. Now you talk about being trustworthy for your team and um, being real, being polite kind, truthful yourself and being the person that you actually want your team to be. Um, mm. Do you think that's part of the fact with um, being kind, um, overuse of social media devices, yelling, etc.? because that's what a lot of teenagers are actually getting normalised uh, by their parents with their behaviour? Yeah, in terms of um, young people um, seeing their parents behaving in this way and yeah. therefore, yeah, no, definitely. And I think Especially with younger teens, it's important to remember how or to know how much influence parents actually have on their behaviour and lifestyle choices. And that if we're modelling a type of behaviour that we don't want our young person to have, then, you know, we can't expect them to be living in a way that, that we're not kind of living ourselves. So, um, you know, and pretty much every parent yells at some point unless they're so kind of shut down from the situation <laughs> that they kind of have given up you know but and that's okay as long as you go hey I think I overreacted there I apologize for yelling that's not okay um let's talk this through now that we're calmer um you know so it, it's not about being perfect it's and certainly not beating yourself up emotionally if you do do something that you regret but it's about owning that and saying hey yeah lost the plot there that wasn't that wasn't okay I apologize and I think that's probably a change in our sort of gen x parenting um that we do feel like apologizing to our kids is an okay part of parenting because we're repairing the ruptures and we're aiming to kind of have a fresh start um, and also it forms a template for our young people about future relationships, like with their friend or boyfriend, girlfriend, if things fall apart, but things are also repairable. It's not, it's all over because we had one argument. So that's the end. And they go, oh yeah, we had a falling out. We were both emotional and tired. Um, just need to fix it now. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important. You know, and when it comes to things like alcohol as well, that 
modeling is incredibly important. You know, if you're having mates around for a big hoedown every weekend and everybody's drunk and, you know, and then you say to your kind of 16, 17 year old, you are not to touch a drop of alcohol. Um, when you've been demonstrating that you have um, very liberal views about alcohol when it comes to your own use, then, you know, your kids are likely to go, oh, that's pretty hypocritical. I'm going to yeah. do what I want, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Um, whereas if you um, are able to model the kind of drinking behaviour you'd like your young person to have, then it's much more likely that your kids will follow suit. Without divulging too much, what's been your worst moment as a parent? You think if I said what's if 10 on the Dr. Joe highlights reel, what would be the moment that you, if you could get it back, you'd go, This is probably the jewel in the crown? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably like actually, probably with um, my daughter who also has ADHD and dyslexia and is also academically gifted, um, that I didn't seek more support when she was a five, six-year-old in terms of the things that we were likely to sort of go through in terms of that combination um, so that I had enough support to be able to stay um, sort of calm and have some practical strategies rather than just getting angry and irritable with her every day about being late and not doing this and not doing that. So I think that's probably my biggest regret and that's sort of over kind of a prolonged period rather than one moment. Um, but I think that was an area where I didn't have enough personal sort of knowledge and strategies at the time when she needed that. Now, often when we talk to kids as cops, they'll often say that they don't want to talk to their parents about, say, for instance, internet bullying, uh, because their parents simply aren't interested in either social media or what they're interested in or anything else. Validation and parents that show an interest in their children is a huge key to all of this, isn't it? If you're not interested. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't expect your kids to be interested in your opinion on life if you're not interested in theirs. And often the time to sow seeds of ideas about things that you see as important is after you've listened to their interests and their opinions. So, um, and also, yeah, validating the emotions that they have about things, even if you don't fully understand the situation that you can say, you know, it seems like you feel really upset about this or this has made you seem really angry with the situation. Um, so, you know, if you don't really understand internet bullying, you can still empathise with the distress that your young person is experiencing. Um, I think parents often have a tendency to just launch straight into problem-solving solutions and they don't actually stop to take a breath to calm themselves, to listen to what their young person's actually saying and to validate the emotions that they're going through and see whether the young person actually would like some help coming up with some uh, problem solving or whether they actually just want mum and dad to hear them and understand what they're going through. Um, and, you know, I think that's probably one of the biggest communication learnings is that breathe, listen, validate, um, do that first. And often that's all you need to do uh, when a young person is upset. It still staggers me as a police officer that when I'm talking about cyber safety to groups of parents, I will very often, and I know that you are very social media savvy, talk about mm. stories, posts or reels, and there'll be sort of maybe half the audience 
have no idea what I'm talking about, what social media mm. is what I'm talking about, but yet they're quite happy to give it uh, or put it in their hands of their children as a sort of distraction device so they can carry on with work or it's just something that they do. Does that concern you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think I have the advantage probably being a stand-up comedian that I have to be mm. all over social media in terms of um, connecting with comedy gigs and show promotion and things like that. And also spending a lot of time with comedians in their 20s and 30s, sort of by osmosis, I kind of find out about lots of things. Um, but yes, I think, um, especially with children and younger teenagers, if you're going to be allowing your young person to have a smartphone and access to the internet at home and things, to at least sort of understand the basic mechanics of how social media works. And, um, you know, there's things like the... Um, on Snapchat, the location map. Yes. I remember kind of being sort of somewhat horrified when my daughter showed me a map where she could see where all of her friends were at all times. You know, and if a young person, you know, has their lo find my location on and all sorts of random strangers are following them on Snapchat and they have it open to everybody, uh, that's pretty scary that anybody can find your teenager. Um, so things like that, I think it's important to actually know that there are these kind of functions built into social media and what some of the safety implications might be. Now, helicopters parents, you used the term before, and one of my favourite bulldozer parents, uh, mm. they have this whole thing of having their kids' safety and their interests at their heart. But to be mm. fair, they're not really doing them, their children any huge favours, are they? Yeah, and I mean, I think... Helicopter parenting in particular comes from parents being anxious. Um, you know, and I know myself, there are times where I flick into being a helicopter parent when I'm anxious about my kids, where I'm like hovering and I'm asking lots of questions and I'm texting them and I'm checking in every five minutes whether the problem's been resolved. And it's definitely coming from my own anxiety um, you know, in that sense, you know, don't want your kids to feel any distress, don't want them to fail at anything. So you end up just hovering over them and sending down rescue ropes at the slightest thing. But there's quite a lot of emerging evidence that helicopter parenting increases the risk of anxiety and depression in our teens, uh, that they don't develop that sort of competency and self-confidence that they can manage problems themselves and um, so we're actually doing a young person an injustice you know and obviously with a two-year-old helicoptering is developmentally appropriate where you need to be um, you know keeping a fairly close eye on things but even at that very young age allowing your toddler to kind of have a go at things before you kind of step in and do for them um, and that progressively as your child gets older and becomes a teenager that you step back more and more and uh, the term that I think I've invented of benign neglect <laughs> yeah. uh, where, you, where you're not seriously neglecting your kids but you're intentionally stepping back and allowing them the chance to give things a go without sort of hovering anxiously um, so that they can learn from sort of mistakes and things that go wrong without parents kind of fixing it for them so that they don't have any chance to learn and grow. Well, so do you think that's one of the reasons, I, I know that you and I are about the same age, you still look 20 years younger than I do, but <laughs> um, do you think that's one of the reasons our parents did so well is that they 
obviously had a black belt and benign neglect, and they were very much sort of like, I'm happy for you to go and play on the street for the next five or six hours with your friends. Yeah. I know where you yeah, are, I'm exactly. not worried. Yeah, and we kind of learned to ride bikes in the dark and kind of find our way out of being lost in forests because we kind of went walking too far. And, you know, I mean, we we kind of problem solved to kind of find solutions to things and kind of went, yeah, I'm a brave 10-year-old. I can get to the top of that hill and find my way home. And, you know, so I think all of those experiences where we had more freedom and were allowed to kind of experiment with things more, um, did increase our sense of competency and self-confidence. Um, and so I think that's where those good intentions um, of parents, you know, I want to help and support and be involved in my kid's life, all very great intentions. It's just that they've been taken too far. Mm. And that's that's where the kind of danger area is kind of full-on helicopter parenting as opposed to being kind and interested um, but not over-involved. Now, the question I always ask all mental health specialists when I have them on the podcast is this. The difficulty accessing mental health services was one of the key reasons you wrote When Life Sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I made you the queen of mental health services for Aotearoa New Zealand, how would you fix it for us? Yeah, I think I would significantly increase the number of clinical psychology um, placements at the moment. It's incredibly competitive to get into clinical psychology at university. And so uh, there's a whole group of people who would love to be clinical psychologists who don't get in. Um, So, you know, obviously then the whole pathway of clinical placements and things has to expand Um, But to me, that's sort of one area where there's a huge lack because every mental health service around New Zealand is missing clinical psychologists and jobs and there are not enough to be able to see the people who could really benefit from it. So I think that um, sense that every citizen of Aotearoa New Zealand um, would be able to access a clinical psychologist as a first step for most mental health difficulties uh, would be what I would do. And, that, and probably me, have, have oh. something like Medicare in Australia where you can see clinical psychologists in private practice and have at least kind of a proportion of that funded. Yeah, and that's one of the real strengths of this book, I've got to say, is that you've gone sort of one step further and I'm not going to go through a chapter by chapter blow because I want you to go out and buy the book if you're listening. Um, But you go through sort of um, explaining what mental health services do right the way down to, okay, um, somebody's dropped you off at the hospital and you're going to get a a mental health referral. This is what's going to happen next. Here's some of the steps. Yeah. Lots of times. Was that really important to sort of say to people? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wanted to be able to share the vast majority of the uh, mental health knowledge that I'm holding in my head because I was very aware that there's only a very small number of people who I can actually see one-to-one but that I have a lot of knowledge about how mental health services work in both Australia and New Zealand and particularly working with clinical psychologist Catherine Gallagher I was able to kind of mine her brain for all her gold nuggets um, in terms of what are the first steps that clinical psychologists would do in those first couple of uh, sessions so that the things that parents can try at home could be incorporated into that so that they're not in that powerless position of 
I've got no clue what to do in this situation. I need somebody to fix my teenager. I can't get access to anybody that they actually go, okay, well, there's quite a few things that we can try at home first. So let's see if we can get going with those things rather than just sitting there feeling hopeless. Um, so, yeah, so it was very intentional to put lots of practical information into the book so that it's very much like a first aid manual. Yeah. And what you've got a brilliant chapter on mental health services, what happens, what what's going to happen, what to do, um, and then you get to diagnoses, um, which, as you say in the book, has its pros and cons. Now, I've, mm. I personally, as a police officer, have met a seven-year-old who's proudly told me they have PTSD, anxiety, and ODD. And when I said, oh, where did you find all of that out? She goes, oh, that's what mum told me. I was a bit worried. Yeah. But many parents are reluctant to get their kid diagnosed as they think that their child, it's going to limit their child's options um, or it's going to work against them in the future or something else. But on the flip side of that, it's also, um, and I know this because my child's had a diagnosis, um, yeah. that, that you it's also going to open the doorway to lots of, um, assistance and services. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I've, like I've seen that with both my kids in terms of the understanding that they've gained by realizing that they've got dyslexia and they're both very smart, but spelling is not a strength. And my, for my son, reading is a big challenge. Um, but he knows he's very good at maths and thinking outside the square and problem solving abilities. So he's got an awareness of his strengths and the things that are more challenging. And then he can problem solve you know, how can I get through university without having to do too much reading? You know, what are, what are the other ways I can do it? Why do you think that parents are so reluctant to get diagnoses? Is it that sort of the shame of sort of having, having a child that's got yeah, a diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a whole mix of things. I mean, I think with things like ADHD and dyslexia and autism, some parents kind of go, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of a PC gone mad, kind of has to be a label for everything. Kind of just back in my day, you were just dumb and lazy and we'll just go with that, thanks. You yeah. know, so some of, some of it's lack of understanding about what some of these diagnoses are or kind of a depressed teenager's just lazy and can't be bothered or um, that's just what all teenagers are like. Um, so I think some of it's lack of understanding and sort of education in that area. And some of it also is a fear of, how will other people react if they know my kid's going through depression or has panic attacks or has bipolar disorder or, um, you know, so there's there's definitely that fear of what the implications might be, what, what might be the flow on effects of a diagnosis. Um, but, you know, I mean, the reality is that for most people kind of understanding what's happening with their mental health and then having a plan of how to minimise the effect um, and the symptoms they're dealing with um, tends to work much better than kind of hoping it will just go away and ignoring it, um, in which case things tend to get worse. Um, so I, th I think in the majority of situations, the diagnosis helps to make sense of what somebody's going through. And then there's a whole lot of evidence-based treatments and kind of supports that can be put in place to help a young person get through that. Now, one of the things that you do in the book is you have, because you're a woman of science and comedy, not very often I get to say that, so that's <laughs> quite good. So, but you have uh, some stats to back up what you're actually trying to validate. And the one that made me just almost fall off my seat was with high rates of teen mental health problems, it's a bit scary that studies indicate as few as 7% of teenagers 
move enough to stay well. Stay well. Now, you mentioned a, a whole range of different ways to get your kids exercising, but the question I want to ask you is, when you were researching the book, what was the stat that made you pretty much fall off your chair like I did with the exercise? Yeah, um, I think a lot of them, to be fair, kind of <laughs> lack of sleep, lack of movement, poor nutrition, uh, the rates, you know, and even since I wrote the book, there's been some new stats come out like at the end of the last year, particularly in Australia, with things like a 60% increase in referrals for anxiety and depression and a 50% increase um, for self-harm behaviour and that sort of 80-90% increase over the pandemic with self-harm and eating disorders. So, you know, the sense that people in clinical practice were getting of we have an explosion of young people in need has now really been backed up in Australia and New Zealand with stats of, yes, it's really quite alarming, the number of young people. And yeah, I think in Australia, there was uh, one out of three um, teenagers indicated that they were living with very high levels of psychological distress on an ongoing basis. So that, you know, one in every three teenagers is quite alarming. So I think most of the stats, to be fair, as <laughs> I sort of looked at the updated stats as I uh, read the book were pretty alarming. So about the only things that are looking good is um, drinking less alcohol and waiting longer to have sexual relationships were about the only kind of things that were kind of looking uh, looking promising in terms of some positive trends. And I suspect that's coming down to more education that young people are uh, more aware of the pros and cons of some of these behaviours and making choices. Some's better than none, I guess. So in the book, you talk about a huge amount of topics and full credit to you for that because that's one of the most comprehensive books I've seen for teenagers. Um, was it daunting when you started listing all the topics, you know, trauma, bullying, anxiety, bipolarism? Yeah, it wasn't particularly like... daunting because I, I sat down with Catherine Gallagher and we just kind of brainstormed all the most important things to cover and it ended up being everything, basically. Um, <laughs> and so so decided, okay, that's all good. But then I sat down and wrote it and suddenly it was 130,000 words and the brief was to write the book in 70,000 words. So the most daunting thing really was the process of pruning and managed to negotiate to go up to 90,000 words as a compromise. Um, so it was more a case of how on earth do I get all the really important information on the page and make it short and tight and entertaining to read where appropriate. Um, so yeah, the the pruning editing process was the daunting rather than the um, you know I wrote the anxiety chapter first and it was twenty thousand words the first draft and it needed to be seven thousand so that's the kind of degree of pruning um, that was required to kind of go whoa we're going to <laughs> lose a lot of this how do we kind of do that so right. um, yeah so that the breadth of it wasn't daunting because it's all stuff that's very familiar to me yeah. Uh, yeah it was about about the condensing process to meet the uh the publishers because it was it was a commissioned book by harper collins they approached me and said please write this book so um yeah so it was me meeting their brief they said don't make it a boring academic textbook put lots of really practical stuff in it but make it really short and punchy and entertaining so I went, okay, <laughs> yeah. So yes, I'm used to writing um, quite detailed psychiatric reports and I've written two uh, one-woman shows. 
So I felt like writing the book was sort of somewhere in the middle ground between the two of those. What did you have to do to look after yourself? Or what do you do to look after yourself? So, I mean, because it's um, quite easy to be. Yeah, all, I mean, I, I really try and prioritise sleep. If I get less than eight hours sleep, I don't function well. So I really try and ring fence getting at least eight hours sleep a night. I try and ring fence going for a walk for half an hour a day as often as possible. And most of the time I can do that. Having a small dog helps to keep mm. that going and to try and um, have enough nutrition. I do try and do a little bit of yoga every day. Some days it's literally about two minutes, but that's better than nothing. Um, so in my ideal world, I would go to a yoga class every day and kind of have a massage every day and um, get out in nature every day. Those are the kind of things that tend to help my well-being um, and connecting with people who I feel good when I'm with them is another thing. Now, you've just mentioned it there, but um, every mental health specialist I've ever had on the podcast has always spoken about the importance of nutrition, physical activity, and sleep, and sleep being a real big and fairly early indicator that things probably aren't going so well because your sleep yeah. is interrupted. Yeah, um, yeah sleep, sleep's definitely a chicken and egg thing because, yeah, really alarming stats. You know, if, if a young person's sleeping um five hours a night they their risk of suicide goes up exponentially it's quite terrifying and even less than nine hours a night the rates of anxiety and depression and difficulty with memory and concentration gets quite impaired so um yeah so sleep's a, a really big one and it's also tricky because as young people develop anxiety depression um or a have ADHD, you know, sleep becomes more difficult. So you do get this chicken and egg um, situation. And that's why I've put sort of quite a lot of practical ideas for sort of tricking the brain into producing more of the sleep um, hormone melatonin, like getting lots of the bright light in the morning and dim lights with no screens at night and eating a Mediterranean diet and doing some calming meditative yoga stuff seems to boost melatonin as well. So there's there's kind of a few practical things you can do to kind of make your brain produce more melatonin to increase the chance of sleeping well. Now, just stopping for two seconds on the book and putting your psychiatrist hat on, if I came and saw you and said, hey, I need to chat to you about something, and you went, what's that? And I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist by day, I'm a comedian by night, and I'm <laughs> a best-selling author. Um, how, did, how did all that happen? I mean, how, how did you come about your comedy work? Um, and from... I'm, from a professional viewpoint, can you sort of see the irony of the two? Because they're, they're yeah, I mean, I, I think they? to be fair, if I look around my psychiatry colleagues, a lot of them have a creative side to them, and I think that's why you know often um, young people who are quite academic at school get encouraged to go to medical school, particularly if they're strong at sciences. Um, and so, but then when they get to medical school, they go, I'm not so sure about this chopping people up or kind of listening mm -hmm. to sputum in their chest, but hey, I do <laughs> like talking to people and isn't the brain fascinating? So I think, you know, the, the people who are perhaps more artistic and creative at medical school are often kind of uh, um, gravitate towards psychiatry as a more artistic um you know, interpersonal kind of side of things and less um, less kind of anatomy, physiology. Um, and when I was a um, 
a young teenager, I can remember sort of weighing up between going to drama school and medical school because I've been sort of passionate about performing since I think about the day that I could walk and talk according to my parents. So <laughs> I would, would tend to do shows and would get a lot of attention from grandparents and parents and any um, friends visiting my parents with my cartwheel slash singing slash dancing. So the question I was going to ask you is, how many times do you get in your professional career? And I guess only when you were starting off, did you get, uh, when you were a comedian, people sort of saying, oh, she's also a psychiatrist, and people say, yeah, right. Or then when you were... Yeah. I mean, I've had a few people online who, like, following me as a comedian and then somehow kind of see my psychiatrist author page and go, hang on, you're a comedian. You can't be both. Um, and I go, oh, actually, I am. I had I had one person um, who I saw as a psychiatrist uh, who was very unwell get a bit confused when he realised that somebody he knew had directed me in a film and he sort of incorporated it into his mental health difficulties that he had just been um, an actor on one of my films where I was playing a psychiatrist. So, um, but that was that was more about um, the severity of his unwellness that he um, thought that he had been kind of put into a, a film without his consent. Um, but to be fair, my comedy is all about my own personal life, um, so my own parenting experience and my own cancer experience so I don't refer to being a psychiatrist on stage so it's about Joe the person the mother the cancer survivor that sort of thing so I've kept being a psychiatrist and anything to do with mental health out of my comedy so um you know so that I can just be a comedian on stage as myself has been um, my role and I've generally thought um sort of up till now if anybody I'd seen as a psychiatrist saw me performing comedy, would I feel comfortable with what I'm doing? So that's been a little bit my test of um, that. But I'm doing very little clinical follow-up work because I've been so busy with the book and touring comedy shows that I feel a little bit like being a psychiatrist and a comedian and an author is all kind of blending together a little bit as um, sort of me as a combination of those things, uh, particularly with the media and things. So, you know, maybe in the future that I can use being a psychiatrist and a comedian um, for more sort of educational things through an entertaining medium um, to sort of combine those things together more. Um, now, it's one of the key themes in your book is that it's really important for parents to look after themselves too, isn't it? Especially mm. when things aren't quite right at home. Um, do you think that most parents underestimate that because they're basically, I'm not going to say doing fire brigade parenting, but they're trying to push everything towards their child to make yeah, their child Yeah, and I, and I think often the more challenging things get at home, the more complicated solutions parents look for. It's kind of like my kid's out of control. Um, I need somebody to fix my teenager. It's all beyond me. Um, rather than going, okay, um, the most important role I have is my relationship with my teenager. I need to somehow focus on that and to be able to be there for them, I need to be in a good place myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I focus on 
getting myself into a calm place so that whenever I interact with my teenager, I'm more likely to be able to you know, calm the farm um, in, my, in myself um, as opposed to kind of reacting emotionally and then the whole thing kind of flares up again. Um, so I think that's really important to a psychiatrist in the States who's a very renowned um, expert, uh, Bruce Perry, talks about regulate, relate, reason, uh, which is basically calm the farm, then connect with the young person and then there's a chance for kind of logical thought and I think we tend to just launch into presuming we can have a logical conversation when we're just regulated and emotional and the teenagers feeling the same and there's no connection but we're just kind of launching into this kind of uh, conversation that we think is going to make changes in how things are whereas in actual fact we have to regulate and calm the distressed teenager before we can do anything like that and I, I think if we think back to when our teenagers were babies if we were really stressed out and exhausted and over it we often couldn't comfort the crying baby but sort of grandma comes around who's all very chill and the baby instantly settles or dad comes back from having a break and he can calm the baby so it's exactly the same with teenagers if we think that we're basically kind of comforting that kind of distressed baby that's inside our big strapping teenagers and that to do that we need to be in a calm regulated state ourselves so definitely putting our own oxygen masks on first so that we can support our teenagers is a huge message in the book not wrong now i've said the last two the most two difficult questions for you for last so okay. the first one is right, here we go so when you started in private psychiatry practice in new zealand you happen to accept referrals, thanks to a retiring colleague, uh, for transgender mental health. Now, you say yeah. in the book, you say, like I and I did as well, I'm a diversity liaison officer for the New Zealand Police. You struggled with the terms. And as you say, many in the many in the book, uh, sorry, as you say in the book, many who haven't experienced either the LGBTQIA, uh, rainbow or queer community find gender issues, pronouns, gender identity, and all those issues very, very confusing. What advice would you give yeah. them? Yeah, so um, my first piece of advice would be if at all possible to read through chapter 12 because I hope I've written it in a way that kind of gently leads people to the information rather than in a kind of you're wrong, you've just got to believe this kind of uh, way um, because, you know, I think it's important to kind of put it into the context of people growing up like in the 70s and 80s and how there's a different understanding around gender and sexual orientation than there was when we were children that they weren't really topics we talked about whereas uh, young people they are definitely topics they talk about. Um, I think the take-home message is to use the pronouns and name that a gender diverse person asks you to use whether they're a work colleague or somebody in a cafe or your kid, um, that you can't go wrong basically by um, using the names and pronouns that that person has asked you to use and to make sure that if you go and see somebody with your teenager, that there's someone who has a lot of experience in gender diversity um, so that they are able to offer helpful support around um you know traversing this um particular issue with your young person um it's an incredibly complicated topic 
Um, and there are lots of differences of opinion, and I understand that there'll be people listening who are going, ah, oh, it's PC gone mad, or kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, that it will just seem very difficult to understand. But I hope the way that I've written Chapter 12 will um, sort of gently guide people to having an increased awareness and understanding about this topic. It does, Joe. Well done. Uh, so the last question is, the eulogy question is this. Um, it's the question I ask all of my guests. The day mm -hmm. of re reckoning has come for Dr. Joe Prendergast. She is lying in her coffin, but strangely enough, she can hear everything that's being said about her. What would you like? Mm -hmm. What would you like people to say about you? Um, I would like people to say that she did some good in her life, that she helped other people's lives, and has left a positive footprint on the world. And on that note, uh, where do we follow you on social media, Joe? If we want to follow you as um, so, yeah, so um, Joe Garsley, so G-H-A-S-T-L-Y is my um, comedy name for The Cool Mum. I've also got a separate page for my cancer survivorship show, which is called Cancer and Cartwheels. And Dr. Joe Prendergast, psychiatrist and author, is um, for psychiatrist and book related uh, content so um so spread across three different uh, social media handles at the uh, moment busy lady um again congratulations on an exceptional book um like i've said you know it's not very often that you can get a police officer of 27 years to read a book about uh, teenagers and i actually read it from cover to cover and go that was amazing so congratulations it's a yeah. book um and you should be very proud of it um mm. On that note, we will see you next time. Okay. See ya. Bye see you bye. then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Cappuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.